You may be seated as you're taking a copy of God's Word this holiday weekend, this Labor Day weekend. I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Genesis 37. We'll not only be in Genesis 37, but we will flow from Genesis 37 through Genesis 45. If you're visiting with us, we're in a series entitled Genesis Act 3. We have walked through the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob. Now we're walking through the story of Joseph. Joseph is represented in chapter 37 through chapter 50. A fourth of the book of Genesis is devoted to this man and his journey that at first glance might seem to be a total loss. Has anybody ever told you that? Have you you ever heard that phrase, it's a total loss? If you've heard that phrase, it wasn't at a good circumstance of your life. You, you might have heard an insurance adjuster say, I'm, I'm sorry, but it, it, it's totaled, you might have heard. A car accident occurs. The value of your vehicle is not worth as much as it's going to cost to repair it. So that vehicle is towed to a salvage yard and is there to, to get parts off of. You might hear it is a total loss. It's totaled. Now, this morning, as we're walking through Genesis 37 through 50, there's a temptation to bring that expression to the encounter that we have with God's Word and Joseph's story. Last week, we left Joseph, and he made his way from the privileged son to a pit, only to be sold into slavery by his own brother Judah. Now, Joseph seems to be a person that lands when life throws him down on his two sturdy feet. Because when we pick up in Genesis chapter 39, we discover that he's made his way from the pit to Potiphar's place, and he is a person, as we looked at the end of last week, that God is with him. So God was with him when he was the privileged son. God was with him in the midst of the pit, and God is with him in Potiphar's place. It seems as if everything is working out for Joseph. No more trials, no more tribulations, not so fast. What, what, how tall was Jesus? Do, do, you, do you see this in Matthew, Mark, or Luke? Or John, do you, do you know how tall Jesus was? We don't. How long was Paul's beard? Do we, do we get that in Galatians or Colossians? You know, the Bible has scant details about physical appearances, but for some reason in the inspiration of Scripture, we get this description of Joseph. Do you, do you see it in your copy of God's Word that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance? This becomes a problem. It becomes a problem for Joseph because as he's in Potiphar's place, Potiphar has a wife, and his wife is attractive to Joseph, who is handsome in form and appearance. Now, you realize, if you're familiar with Genesis 39, that Joseph resists the advances of Potiphar's wife. And it's vividly described how he's cornered in this moment and he flees and his clothes are ripped into the hands of Potiphar's wife as he flees out of the door saying, it would be a dishonor to not only your husband, my boss, but also to God. And so there's this picture of moral purity and surely God will reward Joseph for his faithfulness. Well, Potiphar's wife is a scorned 
love her. She screams out. That, that Hebrew tried to take advantage of me. And so Potiphar comes home and he's entrusted to Joseph everything in his home and under his supervision. And in this moment, his wife has made this accusation of Joseph. And so Joseph goes from Potiphar's place all the way to prison. And in prison, Pharaoh has put two men there that are going to be his cellmates. One a cupbearer and the other a baker. The cupbearer would be a person of extreme importance in an ancient Eastern world, especially for Pharaoh. There's a lot of assassination plans. How would you do that in that Egyptian world there? Well, you would do that by poisoning what Pharaoh would drink. So the cupbearer had tremendous responsibility to drink the first drink of Pharaoh's drinks. Now, the cupbearer is there, the baker is there, and they both have dreams. Joseph's story is a story of dreams and the interpretation of dreams. Uh, the cupbearer tells Joseph his dream. The baker tells Joseph his dream. They're very similar dreams with one real big difference as we read in this story here. And the difference is this, that the cupbearer predicts his freedom and the baker foreshadows his death in his dream. And so what we discover is the baker is hung and the cupbearer is restored to a position in the palace. And it's in this moment, as you can hear the shackles coming off the cupbearer's wrist, where he cries out, Joseph does to him, don't forget me. When you make your way from the prison to Pharaoh's palace, don't forget about me here. And then we open up God's word, and in Genesis 40, verse 23, we read, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. More than that, the writer tells us, but forgot him. Well, surely God is going to rectify this soon. I mean, he's, he's un, un, unjustly imprisoned here. He's imprisoned for being a, a person of, of purity. So surely God is going to rectify this injustice and do this in a very quick way. But then we read in Genesis chapter 41, verse 1, after two whole weeks. Nope, you don't see that. After two months, God remembered him. No, you don't see that. Look in Genesis 41, verse 1. After two whole years. Pharaoh dreamed. So here is Joseph, a man of righteousness, a man who is fleeing sexual immorality, and what he receives as his quote-unquote reward is to be unjustly imprisoned and forgotten, left for dead. And as he interprets the dream of the cupbearer, he is forgotten by the cupbearer. He seems to be forgotten by everyone. But what we know is something that maybe even Joseph didn't know. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 23, that the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because why? The Lord was with him. So even when he seems all alone, the Lord is with him. Even when he seems unjustly imprisoned, the Lord is with him. This makes all the difference for us to understand that God in his sovereignty is allowing Joseph to experience trials, imprisonment. He's allowing Joseph to go through all of these things, but he is not alone even when he feels as if he's alone. Two years goes by. And I think that, that two years is indicative. It, it helps us to sort of pause and to think about how God's timing is not our timing. We want things and we want things yesterday. 
If you were traveling this weekend and you said, you know, I forgot the book that I was reading off the nightstand. I really would love to continue this book. You, you can download that book on a Kindle app to your phone in less than 15 seconds. You can have it. If you're traveling and you're driving a good bit and you have an Audible account, you, you, can, you can listen to, to so many books, current books and, and classics and everything in between, and you can have that on your phone in 10 to 15 seconds. If you want a spicy chicken sandwich from Popeye's, you can get that in two and a half hours. That, is a, that, that doesn't fit the analogy well. I want to tell you this. Uh, you won't find this in Genesis chapter 40, but that is a really good chicken sandwich. I mean, I'm just going to tell you, uh, it is worth the wait. It is worth the wait. So back to the story here. As we're walking through the story here, Joseph is in prison unjustly for two years, and there is a way for us to be reminded that we can mistake God's seeming delay as always a no. That God is not a genie in the bottle. That our prayers do not command him to come forth and to answer our prayer in our timing and in our way. That sometimes God allows us the journey, the journey of waiting, the journey of not knowing, the journey of walking by faith and not by sight. Two years go, they go by. Joseph feels as if he's all alone and forgotten, and then Pharaoh has a dream. Now, in this context, he, he gathers together all of the palace royalty, and he brings together those that are in his command, and he says, this is my dream. Help me interpret the dream. And you know something? No one can interpret the dream. But the cupbearer, the cupbearer overhears the dream and says, you know something, uh, Pharaoh, I, when, when I was locked up, I remind you of this, because of you, there was a guy there in prison, and I think his name is Joe, and he can, he's got an uncanny knack to interpret dreams. So Pharaoh pulls him out of prison. I mean, are you tracking with Joseph's itinerary here? He is the privileged son who is thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, ends up in Potiphar's place, ends up in prison, and now is making his way to Pharaoh's palace. And God is with him. God is with him throughout the entirety of this journey. Pharaoh says, this, this is my dream here. And Joseph, given by God the interpretation of the dream, says, Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. There are going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. You better make preparations for this. You better put someone in charge of the food management here. And you know what Pharaoh says? He says, well, how, how about you do that? So here we have Joseph. He has moved from the prison to the palace, and he's ultimately the secretary of agriculture for all the Egyptian kingdom. This is what God is doing with Joseph. And as we read in Scripture here, in Genesis chapter 41, verse 57, the whole world came to Egypt to buy corn from them. The ancient Eastern world, not only that ancient Eastern world, but his brothers. The famine affected his brothers, and their dad said, you've got to go. You've got to go to Egypt because we need to eat. So approximately 13 years have passed. 
since Joseph's brothers, Judah particularly, sold him into slavery. And then when they show up in the palace of Pharaoh, Joseph recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. That much time has passed here. That much life has elapsed here in this story. And so what does Joseph do? He does what any brother would do in this situation. He tests his brothers pretty cruelly. He starts with a test, a test of their faithfulness. He says, go back to your dad, because I know you have another brother. And I want you to leave a brother here with me, go back to your father, and bring to me your youngest brother, whose name is Benjamin. So he wants to test them. Will they scorn this brother, Reuben, who's left behind? Will they actually go back to get Benjamin? Will they go back to their dad and they say, well, this man who treated us harshly and cruelly, he told us to come before you and to bring your uh, youngest son, Benjamin, back with us. Well, Jacob trembles at the thought. He's already lost. He's already grieved the, the, the cruel death in his mind of his son Joseph. He cannot imagine parting with his youngest son Benjamin, but yet he agrees to do it largely because one of the brothers by the name of Judah, the very brother who sold Joseph into slavery, says, I will look after him and he will be upon my command and ultimately if anything happens to him it will be upon me he pledges his loyalty to his father to protect his brother Benjamin well they all show up and Joseph has this grand banquet for them he seats them in this strange way in their birth order. He gives five times more to the youngest brother, Benjamin. And then he sends them off and he plants. He plants some silver from the palace in Benjamin's backpack. The servant, as they're fleeing, stops them and says, everybody pull out your, uh, your carry-on bags here. Everybody pull out your Under Armour backpacks here. And they say, why, why? There's nothing in here. We haven't stolen anything. Well, we are missing some silver. And they, they protest. Well, if we would have stolen anything, if you find it on us, you can kill the person who has stolen it. And guess what? It was planted upon the youngest Benjamin. And they realize what they've said. They realize the foolishness of their vow. They realize what is happening. And the very thing that they feared, that their youngest brother would die, the very thing that Jacob the father said, this could never happen. It's happening before them. And in a moment, someone stands up and you wouldn't believe it if it wasn't in God's word. The person that stood up to be an advocate, to say, not him, but me. Don't kill him, but take me is Judah of all people. Really? Judah? The one in Genesis chapter 37 that sold his brother into slavery? Judah in chapter 37, who is the very picture of selfishness? Judah in chapter 38, which is an R-rated story? This is the person who has changed from a selfish to a selfless person. Wouldn't believe it if it wasn't in God's word. But this is the story. You see, Joseph has been transformed. 
he, he's been transformed in these 13 years. He's been transformed by betrayal. He's been transformed by the prison and the pit and by the palace. He's been transformed. His narrative is one of transformation. Joseph is not in that Egyptian pharaoh's palace, the same Joseph who is that cocky, brash person in the fields with the coat of many colors. Life has changed him. Difficulty has transformed him. But do you know this? That not only has difficulty transformed Joseph, but difficulty has transformed Judah. Judah, the one who betrayed Joseph, is a changed man from Genesis 37 to Genesis chapter 44. And we ask, how did that happen? Well, there was a prison that Judah had to travel through, and it was the prison of unthinkable sinful decisions that Judah made. Chapter 38, you can turn there. We won't read. It is an R-rated story. We'll tell it in a PG kind of way this morning. But it is an important story to be able to, to not omit from the telling of Joseph because it really signifies to us some powerful truths of God's Word that we need to hang on to this very moment. Judah, after he sells his brother into slavery, he comes back to the house, and guess what he does? He leaves. He leaves his other brothers. He marries a Canaanite. This is the very thing that Isaac and Rebekah told Jacob never to do. It's the very thing that Isaac and Rebekah told Esau not to do. Esau does it, which is a sign of his spiritual rebellion. Rebekah says, pleads with Jacob, go to my brother-in-law, your uncle's house, Laban. One of the ways that Rebekah does that is to prevent him from marrying a Canaanite, Judah hard-hearted Judah, leaves the brothers, marries a Canaanite, has three children. Their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur, the oldest of Judah, and this marriage that he has with a Canaanite woman, he marries, Ur does, a woman by the name of Tamar. In Genesis chapter 38, we read that Ur sinned against the Lord and was a wicked person, and God killed Judah's oldest son. It's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It it is not a promise that every time that we sin, that there will be death that falls upon us, but it is a good indication and a good reminder to us for all of our sins have physical and spiritual consequences. All of us deserve eternal separation from a holy God because of our sin. God, in his sovereignty, in Genesis 38, he, he made that connected to the wickedness of Ur, and so Ur dies. In that context, in the ancient Near Eastern world, to continue the line of the firstborn, the second brother would have a child, the brother-in-law, with Tamar. His name is Onan. It's a wicked story. The second child wants the pleasure of their encounter, but he doesn't want the responsibility of a child. You know why he doesn't? Because with his brother gone from the picture, he receives a double inheritance. And for him to birth a child with his sister-in-law, he would have to cut his inheritance in half. So he wants the pleasure of the encounter without the responsibility, and there are consequences for Onan's act, and that consequence is death. Ur is dead. Onan is dead. There's only one son left, and his name is Shelah. Shelah is young. 
Judah comes to his daughter-in-law and says, he's too young to be married to you. I have to ask you to go back to your father's house. Tamar is destitute. In that context, there's no hope for her. She has lost her husband, and there's no one to continue her line. And what she begins to realize as time passes by is that Judah, her father-in-law, has no plans whatsoever to continue her line. She will always be destitute. She will never have hope. He's connecting the dots in this superstitious way and saying, Tamar was with Ur. He was also, she was also with Onan. And so he's making a one-to-one correlation here. And so he wants to protect, and we can imagine why. He wants to protect the life of his youngest child. So years go by. Tamar's mother-in-law dies. Judah's wife is that person. She dies. And they're shearing sheep. Now, in that context, Judah is going to live it up. There's an after party where he will lose his inhibitions and he will lose his faculties. And so Tamar, she realizes her opportunity. She disguises herself. She puts a veil over her face. She proposition to her father-in-law. And there is an illicit encounter that occurs. Before that encounter, she asks something that is very strategic. Here is a woman that is taking her future into her own hands, and she says, I need something from you. And what I need is your cord, your signet, and your staff. Why those? Well, what she is asking for is his driver's license and credit card. Three months later, back in the village, Tamar begins to show She is pregnant from this illicit encounter. And everyone begins to whisper in the small town, ancient Near Eastern context. They begin to whisper. They say, Judah, can you imagine? Did you know? Do you know the shame that your daughter-in-law has brought upon your sons that are dead and brought upon you? So he comes to her and says, how dare you do this? Who is the father? And she pulls out a cord, a signet and a staff, a credit card, and a driver's license, and says, this person who owns these possessions, he is the father. Genesis chapter 38, verse 26 reads, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. This is the end of a salacious, twisted story. Tamar, out of this encounter, has twins Zerah and Peras, and we could say with, with assurance, right, that this, this is an unredeemable story, right? This is a total lost story, right? There is nothing good that can come out of this story, right? This R-rated rendezvous, there is no hope Surely there is a a point where God's grace and his mercy just come to the brink of and they can go no further. But here we discover that God utilized the shame and the consequences in Judah's life to shape Judah. So the Judah of chapter 38 is very different than the Judah of chapter 44. And why is that? It was the shameful, sinful consequences of that encounter that broke him. 
and made him from a, a selfish person to a sacrificial person. And we see that God uses and redeems even this hellish encounter, hellish event, in a way to bring about a reunion between Joseph and his brothers. You see, Joseph is changed by his experiences. Joseph is not the same of Genesis chapter 37 as he is in Genesis 44 and 45 and beyond. And guess what? The brothers aren't the same either. Now here's the surprise. Because many of us in this room have the temptation, if we were to live out this story, to feel as if there are people in our life that we would rather just pause in their mistake. Let me tell it to you this way. This last weekend in one of the parks at Disney World, there's a Star Wars land that just opened. And I was thinking just recently about the end of The Empire Strikes Back. Do you remember this? The end of The Empire Strikes Back. Everything is, is bleak. Everything's dark. Han Solo is frozen in carbonite. And he's stuck. He's paused. And at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, the second of the first uh, trilogy of movies, you have The Return of the Jedi. And in The Return of the Jedi, you have Luke and you have Leia and you have Chewbacca and you have R2-D2 and C-3PO that are all plotting how they're going to get Han Solo out of Jabba the Hutt's grips. One year has passed between Han Solo being frozen in carbonite and when Luke and Leia, they're able to, to free him from the hands. One year has passed. One year that Luke and Leia and all of the plans and all the plotting have come to fruition, but one year where Han Solo is frozen in time, frozen in the moment. And if we're not careful, there's a temptation for that scene to become a metaphor for many of our lives in this very room. There is a temptation for Joseph to freeze Judah in chapter 37. And say, you're the one who sold me into slavery. The last thing that I want to hear is how you want to lay your life down for this guy by the name of Benjamin. Freeze him in that moment. And while none of us in this room most likely are going to live the, the Jerry Springer details of this story. We all have our own stories. And the temptation for you and the temptation for me is, is to take those people... The Judas in our life who wound us and freeze them in the carbonite of our unforgiveness. We define them and confine them by their mistake, by their sin, by the thing that they did to us. And life goes on for us. We receive mercy. We receive grace. The, the stream of life flows for us, and we're able to see how we develop, how we change, how life moves us forward. But all of those people, the Judas of our encounters, we freeze them in their worst moment. We freeze them in that sinful conversation. We freeze them in what they did to us. Never to allow the truth of Genesis to flow through their own lives. What is that truth? Well, this is the truth of Judah. That no person in the world is too far gone. The truth of this story is, is that no person on earth is beyond God's redemptive 
power that God desires to transform the hardest of hearts of any person who would turn from their sin and embrace his grace and embrace his mercy, even those people that wound us this side of heaven. That God desires to redeem even our total losses. That God desires to take a story, a story that is this salacious, and show us that even good can come out of it, that ultimately is for his glory. Judah was a selfish man that becomes a selfless man in the sacrificial moment for his brother Benjamin. And as you're looking at this story, you say, is that it? I mean, is, is that the way, is that the only way that this total law story is redeemed? Just that a brother stands up for another brother? Yes and no. Yes, that's true. But no, it's not the total story. Because if you take your close-up shot of this story, and, and you change the settings to a panoramic view, and you go out a little bit, and you see how this specific story of Judah and Joseph become a part of God's grand story, you'll see that this isn't the only place that Judah's name gets mentioned. That that in the New Testament, when when you open up the first gospel, Matthew's gospel, there staring you as the lead off chapter of Matthew's gospel is a genealogy. And, and we see the genealogy and we say, oh, this is something we're going to skim through. This is something we're going to skip. At times, if we're honest, we sort of yawn our way through the reading. But I tell you this, if you know the story of Genesis 38, you might be surprised who's in that genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph. Mm-mm. Jacob the father of Benjamin. Nope. Jacob the father of Reuben. Nope. Jacob the father of of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That in Jesus' family tree is this R-rated story. In Jesus' family tree is this salacious total loss story that, of course, is unredeemable. Right? Wrong. I can imagine Jesus as a little boy sitting in the lap of his dad and saying, Dad, tell me about my great, 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 fill in all the greats, granddad. I think his name was Judah. And I can imagine Joseph sort of coughing under his breath and saying, well, that's a rather complicated story. But in all of the complications and all of the hurt and despair and betrayal, we have that God used that raw material to give us the family tree of Jesus. And if he can redeem the brokenness and the pain and the tragedy of this story, would you not trust him with the brokenness, tragedy, and pain of your own total all stories. Let us pray.
So it is, Lord Jesus, that we walk by faith and not by sight. We realize in the very family tree of your adoptive father, Joseph, that there Judah stands, there Tamar stands, there Zerah and Perez, they stand before us as a testimony, Jesus, of, of the way that your father, our father, is able to redeem even the most broken of situations. We trust that you desire and you can work all things together for good, even when we can't understand, even when we can't see, we trust. Lord, we realize that there's a temptation in all of our hearts to pause people in a mistake, to pause people in a sinful decision, to forever confine and refine and define a person by that moment, by that conversation, to never offer to them the forgiveness that we have so freely received in you. Thank you, God, that you do not pause us in our worst mistakes. That Joseph grew, Judah grew, this transformation that oozes from the very pages of your word here. So through the power of your spirit, we pray for that type of transformation in our relationships. We pray that you would soften the heart of the hardest heart of family members and friends, that you would give us wisdom to see those that have harmed us or hurt us, that have wounded us through your eyes, that no one is beyond your reach, that no one this side of heaven is beyond your care and your mercy and your grace. Judah wasn't. Thank God that we're not. May we turn to you in the midst of the wounds and scars of our own life. Will we trust even when we don't understand your timetable? Will we trust even when we cannot discern how you're working all things together for good? It's in your name we pray. Amen.